The Bible is a really big picture thing. Yes, there are occasions when the Bible speaks to you right out of the verse you're reading. As if it jumps off the page and grabs you by the collar and shakes you at the core. That's sometimes called a rhema word. It's a specific word for you in the present moment. But more often than not, what we're reading is building on what we've already read and experienced in the past. And it's a preparation for what's to come in the future. And that's why we shouldn't skip the genealogies and avoid certain books of the Bible because they don't tickle our fancy. We need to value the entirety of the Word of God. In the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul says, I do not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. It all matters. It's all important. I believe Paul's epistles are written specifically to the church, but it all ties together. The Old Testament is not out of date or antiquated or boring. It's the Word of God. And the Word of God, the Bible says, is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing asunder the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and it's a discerner of the very thoughts and intents of the heart. You wouldn't tune into a movie a half an hour late and say, I didn't want to watch the part where they were setting up the characters or establishing the backstory. That would be foolish. You would miss too much. You would miss the true meaning of the movie. You may get to watch the final chase scene or how the love story pans out, but you will have missed out on the grand plot and the overarching purpose and message the author was trying to convey. The same is true with the Bible. If you only read the New Testament or you hang out in Revelation all the time because you like the way it ends, you're missing out on the grand plot. You're missing out on the greatest love story of all time. It's an adventure with more twists and turns than any human author would dare put into the story. And it all works together. It all builds on itself. The New Testament is concealed in the old, and the old comes to life in the new. It's all amazing. You need to read it all, from the front cover to the final page, from the beginning to the end, from Genesis 1 to Revelation chapter 22, and all points between. And though Jesus was born of Mary at the beginning of the New Testament, as we read the annals of the Old Testament, we discover types and shadows of Jesus revealed to us by the God who dwells outside of time in one big eternal now. He is the great I am. He isn't the I was or the I will be. He is the God of the eternal present. He is I am. The series is called Jesus in the Old Testament. In part one, we saw David as a type of Jesus. Noah's Ark was a type of Jesus in part two. And then last week, in the message about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the fourth man in the fiery furnace, we saw 
what is known as a theophany, an actual pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Those are Old Testament passages conveying to us New Testament truths. And when we eventually see them play out in the New Testament, having read them in the Old, it builds our faith. We begin to connect the dots. The Bible begins to come to life for us. But that takes some investment on our part. I encourage you to pour yourself into the Scriptures If you only read one thing, read the Bible. Begin every day in the Bible. Make it part of your morning routine. Allow it to shape your day and mold your life. The psalmist said, I rise before dawn and I cry for help. I hope in your words. Psalm 63.1 says, O God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land. The song that was written about that verse says, My soul follows hard after thee. Early in the morning will I rise up and seek thee. The church would be better. You and I would be better if we began every day in the word of God. We would be better if we asked God to direct us on the front end instead of asking him to fix us on the back end. Why muddle through the day our way when we can soar through the day God's way? Why endure when you can thrive? Why struggle when you can flourish? Why crawl when you can fly? Why go alone when Jesus is offering to go with you? It's all there in the pages of Holy Writ. It's all there for the taking. It's yours, an amazing gift, a wonderful offer from the one who created heaven and earth, a love story, a love letter from him to you, and all you have to do is open it. It all fits together like a giant puzzle, piece by piece, and in the end, it's a grand tapestry of faith, hope, and love. Today we find another type of Jesus way back in Genesis chapter 22. And while you're turning there, allow me to wish you happy Mother's Day to the moms out there. We're so thankful for moms, the most noble of all tasks and and vocations is mom. We love the moms that make up Central Assembly. I'm grateful for my mom. She passed away back in 2017, but mom's Uh, have a big part in shaping who we are. And so today we're grateful for moms. I'm also grateful that you're watching via the live stream telecast today. Uh, I'm looking forward to the day when we gather together in the house of the Lord. Looking forward to the day when the sanctuary is filled. I'm looking forward to the day when we can look each other in the eye and pray for one another, worship side by side. That'll be a great day. And I anticipate it coming, uh, hopefully, very soon. But we're glad you're here. We're glad you're in Genesis 22 with us this morning. And and there we find a, a puzzling story, really. It's one of those bizarre twists that no one would ever see coming. But God, in his infinite wisdom, 
was trying to prepare us for something still in the pipeline. He was wetting our whistle in one sense and preparing our heart in another. And though we are in some ways still troubled and baffled by the story, God knew exactly what he was doing. Genesis 22 begins in verse 1, it says, And it came to pass that God did tempt Abraham. That word tempt there really means test. God did test Abraham. And he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains that I will tell you of. Now, that's bizarre enough, but factor in the promises God had made to Abraham out of all the nations, of of how all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his son Isaac, and how he would have innumerable descendants, as many as the stars in the heavens and the sands as the seashore, through his son Isaac. It didn't seem to line up. It was a promise 25 years in the making before Isaac was even born. And now an aging Abraham was to sacrifice the son of the promise. It made no sense. But once again, God was trying to tell us something. God was trying to prepare us for something. And if we were patient, it would all come together in the end. The place of Isaac's sacrifice was to be on Mount Moriah. As we read verse 2, God seems to be directing Abraham to a specific place. Get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell you of. Moriah was a mountain range. God is instructing Abraham and Isaac to make their way to a general area. And then he indicates that he will show them the specific place later. And there is significance to the place that God called Abraham to offer Isaac. Mount Moriah would be where the threshing floor purchased by King David from Aruna the Jebusite was. It was there years after the story of Isaac had transpired that David built an altar and offered sacrifices to appease God after he had foolishly numbered the people, which resulted in a plague of judgment in 2 Samuel chapter 24. And then, in that very spot, a generation after that, Solomon would erect the original great and majestic temple on the same site as the threshing floor, according to 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared to David his father in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Mount Moriah was also the location of many of the events during the ministry of Christ. The scene of his arrest on the Mount of Olives, the fateful night of his crucifixion, was just to the east, and the crucifixion itself at Calvary, just to the north. 
Today, Mount Moriah is under Muslim control. While Muslims pray at the gold-topped dome of the rock located on the Temple Mount, Jews pray below at the Western Wall. It all happened in a special place to God. It was a place God has always had his eye on. While Abraham traveled up the mount, prepared to offer his only son of the promise on a makeshift altar, God was seeing down the corridors of time. There he saw David purchasing the land and offering his sacrifice on another improvised altar to save the people from the plague in that very spot. And there he saw Solomon's temple being constructed where countless thousands of animals would be sacrificed on the altar of atonement for the sins of the people. And there God saw a day when his only son, his only begotten son, would journey up the same mount to be offered on the altar of the cross. You see, it all points to the cross. It all points to Jesus. The Old Testament looks ahead and the New Testament looks back to the cross, the apex of history, the place where it all comes together and all the questions are answered. The cross. It all happened on Mount Moriah. I love the typology of Genesis 22. Typology refers to the study and interpretation of types and symbols. It's what a passage or a person or a story depicts. We read of what is recorded in the moment, but there's something just below the surface left for us to uncover. And here we begin to see Genesis 22 as a picture or a type of Jesus. In verse 3, it says, Abraham took two of his young men with him, and Isaac and his son, and Isaac his son. Now we see this as a shadow of the two men crucified with Jesus, two nondescript men on the journey with the one who was to be the ultimate sacrifice. Verse 4 says, On the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. This denotes a three-day journey from the cross to the resurrection. It had to be three days of heartfelt grief. Imagine Abraham on this lengthy trek, knowing he's headed toward an altar where Isaac, his son, would die. It's a three-day journey from Beersheba, where Abraham lived, to Moriah. It's the three-day journey from the cross to the empty tomb. Three days of somber mourning. Three days of silent sorrow. Three days of hopeless lament. Imagine Abraham on the three-day journey. And then imagine the despair of Mary, the disciples, and the followers of Jesus on a three-day journey from Calvary to the empty tomb. Imagine the hopeless despair on the three-day journey from Good Friday to Easter morning. Three long days, a long, agonizing three-day journey. Verse 5 is another passage loaded with shadows and messages cloaked in the happenings of the day. 
Verse 5 says, Abraham said unto his young men, Abide here, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship, and we will come to you again. Now the first thing that stands out to me in this verse is that he calls the act of presenting an offering worship. Hmm. We don't necessarily think of worship that way, but they weren't going up there to sing. It reminds us of the true definition of worship. And that to me is anything that pleases God. It's going to church, it's giving in the offering, it's any act of obedience, it's being kind to your neighbor, it's giving to the poor, it's singing a song of praise to God, it's the way you live your life, it's that and so much more. It's anything that brings joy to the heart of God. Abraham and Isaac were going to worship. Their obedience, their surrender was pleasing to God. And that's exactly what worship is. Verse 5 also contains a great statement of faith. As Abraham declares, the lad and I will come back to you again. It's a statement that proclaims Jesus as the resurrection and the life. It declares that Death is not a destination. Death is a doorway into eternal life. He's going to sacrifice his son, but he boldly declares, we, as in both of us, we will be back. And Hebrews 11 gives us some insight into what Abraham was thinking. Verse 17, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, that he, uh, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Verse 19, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Isaac returning alive would be a figure or a type of the risen Christ. Abraham didn't understand exactly what God was calling him to do. I'm sure he didn't fully comprehend the whys and the hows and how all of this would play out. But what he did know was God was perfectly capable of raising Isaac from the dead. In verse 6, we find more typology. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, it says, and laid it upon Isaac, his son. It's Father Abraham laying the wood upon his son to carry up the mountain. And it's a shadow of God the Father on a day yet future, laying the wood of the cross upon Jesus to carry up the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. John 19, 17 says, And he, speaking of Jesus, bearing his cross, went forth into a place, a place of the skull, which is called in the Hebrew, Golgotha. Isaac carried the wood, which would be used as the means of his own death and sacrifice, just as Jesus bore the cross upon which he would suffer and die for the sin of the world. Amazing typology. Verse 8, it's another great faith statement by Abraham. In verse 7, Isaac 
had asked a difficult question. He said to Abraham, Behold the fire and the wood. Interesting to me that they're carrying the fire. We would have a book of matches or a lighter in our pocket. They didn't have that. They're carrying the fire. And, and Isaac says, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? And Abraham, again, speaking in faith, said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they both went on together. Himself a lamb. Abraham could not see the outcome of all this, but he spoke in faith and he trusted God to provide. And provide he did. He provided himself a lamb. Abraham had received promises from God before, and, and God had blessed him. God had provided for him. God had protected him, directed him, and prospered him beyond his wildest dreams. And now it seemed as though Abraham had finally gotten to the place where even if he couldn't see God's hand, he could still trust God's heart. I hope that's where you find yourself today. We cannot hope to know everything God is, is thinking. We're not meant to figure out all that he's up to, but we can know God's track record. We can trust God's heart, and we can, like Abraham, choose to obey. Verse 9 says they came to the place which God had told him of. Again, a reference to a specific place that God directed them to. And Abraham built there an altar and laid the wood in order, bound Isaac his son, laid him on the altar upon the wood. Isaac was bound, according to verse 9, and laid upon the wood which was assembled in a certain way, laid in order, the Bible says. Just as Jesus was laid upon the wood that was fashioned into a cross. And in the same way, Roman soldiers took a hammer to nail Jesus to a cross. In verse 10, Abraham stretched forth his hand and took a knife to slay his son. But in that moment, at the last second, at the 11th hour, in his perfect timing, God stepped in and provided. Verse 11 of Genesis 22 says, And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Lay not your hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Verse 19, so Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose up and went together to Beersheba. The final great typology of Genesis 22 is the ram caught in the thicket. And here we have the doctrine of substitution beautifully pictured. 
The ram became the substitute for Isaac, offered in his stead, according to verse 13. Isaac would be spared, and an innocent would die in his place. In the same way, Christ was the substitute for you and for me, dying in our stead so that we could be free from the law of sin and death and experience eternal life. Jesus would be himself a lamb. John the Baptist foretold it as he saw Jesus coming toward him. In John 1.29, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. The ram prefigured Christ, the thicket representing the crown of thorns. The ram took Isaac's place upon the altar, and the blood was spilled so Isaac could live. God provided himself a lamb. Jesus took your place on the cross, and his blood was shed so that you could live. And then God makes a great statement to Abraham in verse 12. Now I know, he says, that you fear God, seeing that you did not withhold your son, your only son, Isaac. Let's not miss the valuable lesson of obedience as a manifestation of our faith. How much we trust God is revealed by our level of obedience. Let me say that again. How much we trust God is revealed by our level of obedience. If Abraham could pass this test, he could pass any test. If he was willing to obey and sacrifice what mattered most, there was nothing that he would withhold from God. And out of it comes the greatest typology of all, the resurrection. Abraham believed Isaac would die on Mount Moriah, but something very different happened. A lamb died in Isaac's place. Isaac was as good as dead, but now he was alive. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Well, maybe you're listening today. Maybe you're, you're local here in Superior, or maybe you're across the miles. But today you're listening, and the reality is you're dead. You're as good as dead. Well, I'm here to tell you today that you can live again. Yes, I know you're a sinner. Yes, I know you do not deserve eternal life. I know you do not deserve heaven. I get it. I understand. God will provide. In fact, he already has. He is Jehovah Jireh, after all. It means the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh can provide for you too. He will provide himself a lamb. But it begins with a step of faith on your part. Remember our story. Abraham was willing to sacrifice what mattered most. And in doing so, he demonstrated that there was nothing he would withhold from God. You know, sometimes we have to let go of what we have so we can take hold of what the Lord so desperately wants to give us. Abraham would have to let go of what he treasured most 
or he would never get to see the miraculous provision of God. So as I close this morning, let me ask you three simple questions. Number one, what's in your hands? What in the material realm is taking up space that God wants to occupy? What is in your hands? Number two, what is in your head? What thoughts, what ideas, what, what lies are crowding out the truth that God so desperately wants you to take hold of? And finally, what's in your heart? What do you love that keeps you from what God has wired you to love? What's in your hands? What's in your head? And what's in your heart? If you surrender like Abraham and Isaac, you will encounter Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. But Abraham had to be willing to let go of what he valued most. Then, and only then, would he discover the miraculous provision of God. And that's what I'm asking you to do this morning. It's a difficult step. I don't believe you can just add God to what you already have who you already are. I think a lot of people try to do that. And, and consequently, they take on the label of Christian, but nothing in their life changes. I think it's different than that in the truest sense. The Bible speaks of being born again, and when you're born again, you're a new creation. God didn't call you just to be better or just to try to be good or to turn over a new leaf. Jesus died on the cross. He came into this world, suffered and died for you so that you could be a new creation, so that you could be made new. But it starts with surrender. You have to let go of what's in your hands. You have to let go of what's in your head. And you have to let go of what's in your heart. And what you'll discover in the end is it all comes full circle. Is that what God gives you, what Jehovah Jireh provides for you, is much better than what you ever had before. It's much better than what you ever dreamed of having. So I encourage you this morning, let go of what traps you in this material realm. Let go of what's in your hands. Let go of what's in your head. Let go of all the lies, all the thoughts, all the ideas that keep you from taking hold of the truth that God has for you today and let go of what's in your heart. What is it that you love that keeps you from loving God? I encourage you to surrender that to him today. Put it on that altar and offer it up to the God who loves you more than you can imagine. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the typology that we see in Genesis 22. Abraham and Isaac, an amazing story, a baffling story. And yet as it comes full circle, we begin to see what you're trying to tell us. 
we begin to see what you're picturing for us. And then as we read about Calvary, as we read about the cross, as we read about Jesus, the plan comes together. Lord, help us to surrender. Help us to give it all back to you. Help us to surrender what's in our hands. Help us to surrender what's in our head. And help us to surrender what's in our heart that we might become the men and the women that you've called us to be. Born again, washed in the blood of the Lamb. Ready to be used for your kingdom's work, for your kingdom's sake, that you might be glorified. And we pray all of that this morning in the precious and wonderful name of Jesus and all God's people said amen. Listen, if you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today, or if you recommitted your life to him, would you do me a favor and would you type that into the chat bar? Would you type into the comment line, Tom, I gave my life to Jesus today. Tom, I recommitted my life to Jesus today. I want to be able to pray with you and I want to be able to agree with you as you begin your journey of loving and serving Jesus. God bless you.